Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net to Go. We hope you enjoy. I'm Shruti Jayakumar, and I'm here today with Professor Martin Elliott to talk about his outstanding career. Professor Elliott is a world-famous congenital cardiothoracic surgeon and has served as the medical director of the renowned Great Ormond Street Hospital, a role in which he's made a huge impact on quality and safety. Notably, he's developed and led the National Tracheal Service for babies born with congenital tracheal abnormalities and is a world-leading expert on slide tracheoplasties for the treatment of tracheal stenosis. One of Professor Elliott's other interests is outcomes and safety in congenital heart disease, and he's developed the European Congenital Heart Defects Database. Now, if all of that was not enough for you, he and his team have worked with Formula One teams applying the teamwork and leadership techniques they've developed to cardiac surgery and more recently to other industries. Currently, he's a 37th Gresham Professor of Physic, where he's given a really fantastic series of public lectures, which you can find on the web, ranging from heart transplantation, healthcare economics, and the symbolism of the heart in art and literature. A brilliant surgeon, an amazing speaker and a constant seeker of progress and improvement. I'm incredibly delighted to introduce Professor Martin Elliott. Professor Elliott, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Um, perhaps we could begin by talking about how you've gotten to where you are. Um, could you tell us about your journey to congenital heart surgery? Well, as ever, it starts with an inspirational teacher. Um, I had a biology teacher called Dave Holford at school who um, got me interested in biology. I could only do biology in French and there wasn't much opening for me in French, I can assure you. And he persuaded me to apply to medical school and by some luck I got in when I was 17 to Newcastle. Had a great time there, it was a very um, advanced course although I didn't know it, I was so young I didn't know it. And we associated all the diseases we were learning with individual patients so it was always a face to attach to a disease. And then while I was a student, I went off to the States to uh, work in Chattanooga because I think like most young male medical students in those days, I wanted to be an obstetrician and gynaecologist. Um, but proved to be hopeless at that and was, ended up in the emergency room in Chattanooga um, where most of the guys working there were ex-Vietnam vets and knew everything as far as I was concerned and taught me how to tie knots in a, a, a wonderful way of making me put Vaseline on my hands a pair of gloves which were too tight, more Vaseline, a pair of gloves which were too loose, a blindfold, and I had to tie knots in a bucket of warm water behind my back before they let me do anything. And within a few days, I had to tie off somebody's artery in the abdomen and realised then that surgery could save lives instantly and had a direct impact, and I liked using my hands, and drifted into surgery. And then um, did the usual rotations and cardiac surgery on the rotation, I wanted to be a plastic surgeon, that was the best bit, and got summoned back into cardiac surgery to be offered a job in California, where I never went, and ended up uh, doing a research job in Newcastle as an academic, doing cardiac surgery and my MD simultaneously. Um, and actually, this, the key point was I suddenly got bored doing 
adult cardiac surgery, we would, coronary artery grafts was the operation du jour in those days. And I found myself looking up at the clock, seeing how long it was taking me to do a distal end. And I'd forgotten who the patient was. I knew the anatomy really well from the diagram I'd drawn, knew what, why I was doing it, but I didn't know anything about this patient. I thought, that's really not what I want to do and spoke to the surgeons there, particularly Mike Holden, who was a paediatric cardiac surgeon. He said, come and do kids. And that was like a door opening up in front of me to see that there weren't just four operations, there were thousands. Um, and you had a social and moral responsibility which extended over a much longer life for that individual and you were dealing with a family. Um, so that's how I got into it. Um, and in your expansive career, how have you seen the specialty evolve? Well, I mean, it's, I'm old enough to have kind of seen the major disruptive changes. When I was born, there was no bypass machine. So, you know, it's right from that moment. Um, then there was no proper intensive care uh, that grew during my career. There were no computers at the beginning. Everything, if you, no syringe pumps. Everything was done by roller pumps. And, uh, you know, there's little roller clamps on drips and you had to count them. ECGs were still an oscilloscope across a screen, not a, um, you had to sort of trace it and try and remember what the last one looked like. Um, sometimes the next one didn't come, which was more alarming. And, um, and gradually those things crept in. Then there was imaging, no ultrasound, then there was. Um, it was a snowstorm to start with, but gradually got better. There was no MRI, MRI appeared late. Uh, CT was useless, so you couldn't really see very much. And all of that crept in and then finally, this whole sort of structure of the way medicine works is, is completely different. Um, intensivists appeared, uh, anaesthesia got better and better, and the whole of material science, I'd say, um, gradually made every little detail of our work better by sort of um, the kind of incremental change that people talk about as marginal gains. That's really what we've seen over the last few years. Um, it's been amazing, and people were very creative about the operations they could do as well. So there was every now and again, something new came along. So for me, they were the big things. Um, and being part of that transition from high mortality to almost zero mortality in the current era for congenital heart disease has been a fantastic privilege. And um, are there any cases that have particularly stuck with you through these years? Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't think you um, can well, you, can't, you can do this job not caring about people, but you shouldn't, I don't think. And the things that have, have triggered my interest in, for example, research of various kinds have always been individual patients that I have not been willing to let die, if you like, in its, in its crudest form, um, and struggle to find a way to solve them. From when I was a, a senior registrar, I was very interested in... in stopping the mortality for, reducing the mortality for diabetics having heart surgery. So we did a lot of work on how you prime the heart-lung machine, how you control blood glucose using an artificial pancreas. And then I got interested in how you got water out of babies. I got into ultrafiltration, which is still used all over the world now. And finally into tracheal surgery. And each time it's been one patient that I've not been willing to let go. And sometimes against you know, you have to fight against the wishes of your colleagues who would be saying, well, you've done enough, there's nothing else you can do. And for some reason, you get, you get driven. Um, and I'd, I'd be wrong to list their names, but it, 
all of those things have been triggered by individuals. And I think that goes back to Newcastle as a student where we were introduced to a patient with that disease or with that trauma or with that problem right from the beginning and right through the course. So I find it very difficult to separate the science from the patient. I think for me they're an important conglomerate. And um, sort of moving on to something slightly different, what would you say your favourite procedure is? They've, they've kind of varied over time. I mean, one of the problems with cardiac surgery is you judge yourself by whatever operation is the trendy one that everybody has to be good at. Um, so th there's bound to have been a bit of that, but I, I think probably uh, I, I would say that I've obviously enjoyed all the tracheal surgery because we've developed that. Um, before that, I used to really enjoy doing AV septal defects when th that operation was being developed for the neonate. Um, uh, and gradually these things become routine and they become less sort of exciting as a procedure but I've, and I've enjoyed each one of them at the, in, at the beginning stage and making them a bit more reliable so that would go through from the switch and the AV septal defect through to the tracheal reconstructions. And what is your favourite recent advancement in cardiac surgery or congenital heart surgery? Uh, I th that's a really hard question. Um, they're all favourites if they make people's lives better. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to pick one out. I don't think that it works like that. I mean, we, we make minor, mm -hmm. trivial little advances. Big advances are quite rare. And if you follow it back, they're usually, as people say, standing on the shoulders of giants. But actually, you're standing on the shoulders of patients yeah. who've, who've offered up themselves for research. Um, I suppose if I had to pick anything out, it would in paediatric cardiac surgery, it would have to be neonatal surgery over that 40-year period has been a, a, a dramatic change from what it was when I started. So you've led and developed the National Tracheal Service, one of the largest and most specialised tracheal programmes in the world. Could you tell us a little bit about how you went about setting up this unit and um, which patient perhaps inspired you? Yeah, so um, first you have to know what it was like in the 80s and 90s and patients with long segment congenital tracheal stenosis were usually newborn or within the first year of life. And they were treated in every unit. They turned up in every unit because they tended to be seen in intensive care units and the cardiac surgeon would be asked to see them. Um, and their mortality rate was huge. There wasn't very much that could be done for them except a thing called a patch tracheoplasty where you took some pericardial patch and stuck it on the front. Um, and it was very ad hoc treatment. Nobody had seen enough to get any good at it. And uh, we got interested in the 90s in um, a series of patients uh, who had this problem, one of whom, of course, I remember vividly, called Kieran, who became quite well known because he ended up having a tracheal transplant in the end. But there were others of similar type. And we realised that the way medicine was working in those days, and still does in many institutions, is that when you had a problem, you called in an expert. And it would be an ENT problem, so you need a different kind of endoscopy, you'd need a different kind of physiotherapy, you'd need a different type of nurse, you'd need a different type of respiratory physician, and you'd call them when you had a problem. And we thought, this is a dumb way to do work when wouldn't it be better if we all got together and traded off all our skills and made, made a better job of it from the beginning? 
And so we, we got together as those experts and we decided that no one would have any treatment unless we'd all discussed it together and made a cunning plan um, and wrote them down from the beginning and then monitored our outcomes carefully from the beginning. And as soon as we did form that team, our referral rate went up. I don't know, the word got out. And we, we started to do slide tracheoplasties and not patch tracheoplasties. And we massively reduced the cost of doing the work because we wouldn't wait for me or the ENT surgeon to do the endoscopy. We would, whoever was around would do it. And we trained our radiographer to do bronchoscopies. We trained the members of the team to do skills that we thought were our own. And that was um, quite seminal in the way we were able to do more stuff. So the referrals went up and over the next five years, so about 2005-06, we decided that to get the volume we needed to make a big shift in outcomes, we needed to become the national centre so that we'd take 50, 60 million population and drain them into one place. It wasn't to try and be better than other places. It was just because we felt that the more you practice, the luckier you get, as Gary Player said. So that was the basis, and, um, and then a number of things came along which strengthened it. Interventional radiology became a really big thing, and the interventional radiologists do a massive amount of this work and are a crucial part of the team. Imaging changed dramatically, fibre optic endoscopy cameras, materials got better, we ended up with absorbable stents. So it grew from that moment, but it was a, a desire to get good results and a belief that volume is good for you. And um, in your role as medical director of Great Ormond Street, you oversaw huge service reforms, um, one that you know, resulted in significantly improved patient safety and culminated in several awards. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got into that role and sort of how you yeah. achieved this? Well, getting into, um, before, before I was medical director, I ran the cardiac division at Great Ormond Street, which includes cardiology, cardiac surgery, intensive care, and so on. Um, and my predecessor, Mark de Laval, was already obsessed by safety and outcomes, and it was an easy journey to follow in his giant footsteps, actually. Um, but the first thing I did was to set up an outcomes group, which meant that we were much more objectively collecting the data and presenting it in visual ways at meetings, which drove change. So that was a big step, and that has rolled out not only to our unit, but to other departments and so on. I became medical director uh, really for personal reasons because my younger son died and I found the little arguments you had in a department were just unbearable because I liked the people and I just couldn't handle it. So I became medical director where I had bigger arguments, uh, more important issues and uh, people I didn't know so well, so it was a bit easier to cope with. Um, but we, the, the drive for safety um, was uniform in, in the hospital. Leadership from that came from our previous chief executive, Jane Collins, and the whole structure of GOS was built around it. I can't claim any credit for it. It was leadership, and it's leadership at every level in the organisation. If you don't have a total commitment to safety and to quality, you're not going to get it. And it starts at the CEO. It starts with the board it goes right down the organisation to the person at the absolute bottom who must be accountable for the quality of the data in their sector and must know that the patient is the most important thing. That's why you get up and come to work. You don't feel that, your organisation's going nowhere. Thank you, that's really inspiring. 
Um, one of your other big interests um, has been effective teamwork and handovers. You've noted the parallels between Formula One racing and the aviation industries, and you've applied their teamwork strategies to your own teams at Great Ormond Street. What are some of the most important messages you would like tomorrow's doctors or surgeons to take away from this? Um, well, first, again, I'm going to deny it's me. Uh, it, this is something that came through from Mark de Laval, James Reason, who is a professor of organizational psychology in Manchester, Alan Goldman, many, many others, um, Ken Catchpole and Jane Carthy. Without them, nothing would have happened. Right? So it's not me. And um, the Formula One stuff just came by noticing that the journey from the operating room to the intensive care unit, which had been discovered to be quite dangerous and just seemed like part of our day job, um, we kind of ignored it, um, uh, was very like a pit stop. You were just from above, it looks very similar. And we realized when we were lucky enough to get the people in from Ferrari to have a look at us that we were really bad at it. And they taught us to move babies and we taught them to move. Um, to do pit stops really. But that, the, the essence of that, of all of those things, is that you have to open your mind to learning from other industries. There's stuff going on out there or down the corridor which will change the way you can function as an organisation if you just open your mind to it. And um, we, there's still so much more that we can learn if only we can uh, find a way in to other organisations to discuss it. I mean, it fascinates me that Formula One races always start on time and we can never start an operating list on time. I mean, where are our logistics? Where, are our, where is our discipline? As I look back over 40-odd years of, of being a senior doctor, if you like, I think medics have very poor discipline. Organisations have very poor discipline. How can it be that a list doesn't start on time in the 21st century? What's the consequence for a doctor and an anaesthetist surgeon and anaesthetist who don't turn up on time? What's the consequence if the decision isn't made early enough? It's never discussed. And, and actually these other organisations, these big tight logistic firms would never tolerate it. We have so much to learn. Hotel industry, why do they manage to get 98% bed occupancy with no complaining customers? Um, when we have a lot of complaining customers because we're cancelling at the last minute. This is where we've got to go out and learn as much as we can. So I suppose the message from all of that is put the patient first. You, people talk about customer focus, but it's true. If you, they are our customers, we are their servants. And so we end up having to do stuff which makes their lives and their stay in the hospital better and more effective. And we repeatedly fail because we don't do that. In your opinion, what are some of the biggest challenges facing congenital heart surgery in the UK and how can they best be overcome? Um, I think we've done quite well first. The mortality at the first stage is now down to less than 1% in most of the centres. We've got good standards throughout the UK compared with North America. The next um, big thing is uh, to make sure that our capacity is enough that nobody waits, we do the operations at the right time, and that the service is delivered to a high quality with long-term good follow-up, and we're getting there. The biggest challenges are going to be about managing preterm babies, um, and the sort of baby in the bag, lamb in the bag stuff that's going on in Philadelphia with synthetic amniotic fluid and a little pumps by the bedside will change the management of neonates, and we don't know how to pay for that, how to price it, how to value it. And at the other extreme, is what to do with heart failure. 
um, children who used to die of heart failure are now being kept alive, on, a significant number of them, on mechanical devices, but the number of transplants has remained constant and is not going to go up. So unless we can evolve um, regenerative medicine a bit further, and we're still at a controversial stage with that, um, or we can uh, introduce affordable artificial heart devices because they're not at the moment. And in the adult sector, 25 million people in the world with heart failure. You know, if the companies go on charging half a million quid for one of these devices, we're finished. Medicine will die and we'll only be providing care for the wealthy, both in birth and at the end. I see those challenges as really important. What are the ethics about what we do? And what are, are particularly are the cost at the beginning and end of life, which are currently huge. I think it's 30% of US healthcare budget is spent in the last year of life. Just think wow. about that. Wow. Finally, do you have any wise words for those seeking to follow in your footsteps? Um, I asked all the paediatric cardiac surgeons I know um, last year in a series of video interviews um, whether they would do it again. And there wasn't a single one of them that said no. They all said this is the best job I could possibly have. It's the most rewarding. And I, um, I wouldn't put anybody off this job. But there are two things I think that they need to bear in mind when starting it. One, it is about risk. And there is a tendency at the moment for the entrance to be risk averse. And that's not a good thing. Um, the patients we see are high risk patients and you need to be of a personality which is willing to take risk understands that you've got to mitigate those risks. That's the first thing. Um, and the second is that this is a job which will consume your life and emotions maybe more than you predict. Uh, I grew up in an era where you were on call all the time or then one in two at the lowest rotor. Now people are coming in at one in five and one in six and they don't get as much practical experience or as much operating. So how they're gonna cope with the hard patient they rarely see when they haven't done very much operating is going to be dependent on bringing big teams together. And politically, that remains a challenging thing to do in all countries to regionalize sufficiently on that grounds because mortality is low, politicians won't close hospitals. Why would you concentrate on it? I think that is going to be the issue that young surgeons are going to have to face but it's a fabulous job and I would do it again. Thank you very much, Professor Elliot. That was incredibly inspiring and I'm sure it'll inspire many more. Thank you, Shuji. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.